Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see each of you. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians, and uh, we are moving into chapter 3 this morning. Uh, this is a text that I had preached on a few years ago. We were doing a series on evangelism, and uh, I want you to know something. I, when I uh, am preaching through a text that I've preached on before, I don't go back to my old notes. I don't even know if I can find them, so my ability to... Uh, organized files on my computer is deficient so uh i just i i just trust god to bring a message that he wants from his word uh and to allow that to speak to our hearts this morning so let's uh, read together philippians 3 verses 1 through 11 if you would follow along in your bible finally my brothers rejoice in the lord it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you watch out for those dogs those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the true circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. I'm going to read through the rest of the text as we progress this morning. So let's just stop there and uh, work our way into the message. I had a meeting uh, last Friday with a uh, businesswoman, and uh, turns out she, she's a Chinese woman who is a Buddhist and uh, has been very successful. And as we uh, kind of began to talk uh, and were drawing to a conclusion in our discussion, she, she said to me, she said, I, she found out that I was a pastor through this discussion. Someone else had told her that. And I, I, she said to me, she said, I believe that good things come to people who do good. Okay, it's kind of karma, it's kind of legalism, it's kind of works-based righteousness, it's very merit-oriented. And interestingly, then she looked at me and was quick in an obligatory fashion to assure me that I was a good person and would experience good things. I went home and said to my wife, you need to know that. Okay. <laughs> and... I, I said to her, I said, I'm sorry, but I don't see it that way. I don't believe that I deserve good from the force or the God because of my behavior. I hope that I'll have a chance to continue that conversation with her. Uh, here's the question I have for you this morning. Does that kind of thinking that my behavior causes me to merit or to deserve the blessing of God in my life, does that kind of thinking creep into the mind of true believers do you ever find yourself thinking that those that do good get good because i believe this text is written by the apostle paul to confront a natural tendency that we have to be and i'm going to use a word and then i'm going to define it we have a natural tendency to be legalist Okay, now most of us, when we hear the idea of legalism, tend to think about people that live with very strict rules. So I grew up in Harleysville, Pennsylvania. I grew up on the edge of Lancaster County. I grew up in a town that was basically established, Franconia. Okay, it was the town that I lived in. We had our business in Harleysville. I grew up in Franconia. Franconia Mennonite Church is one of the anchor Mennonite church in, churches in America. It was, it was very common for 
people to think of the Mennonites as legalists or of the Amish as legalists. Okay, why? Because they had rules that they lived by. Okay, now, having rules that you live by does not necessarily qualify you to be a legalist. God in His Word gives us ten commandments that we are to organize our lives around and to live by, right? Jesus establishes throughout His Word, through the Sermon on the Mount, moral principles that we are to live by. They're regulations, rules, and guidances. Here's the difference between obedience and legalism. Legalism tends to think that my experience of God's love, my assurance of God's love is rooted in my performance so that my experience of God's love does not start with God so loving the world that he gives. It starts with me performing and living in a certain way so that God is obligated to bring blessing and favor into my life. Okay, and you can be a truly born-again Christian who begins to experience the creep of legalism in your life thinking that ultimately the blessing of God in my life is rooted in the behavior that I enjoy in my experience. Okay, and I think that the Apostle Paul is writing to confront that tendency. You, you will find, as I read through this, you will find that the warning of the Apostle Paul is strong. It begins in verse 3 when he says to watch out for those dogs. So what, what's going to happen? There, it's a text that's based upon a warning that moves to then a resolution in relationship to our personal life. So we're going to work our way through this text with the understanding that in verse 1, Paul is saying this is a core issue that needs to repeated, be repeated in the life of believers. So verse 1, he says, Finally, brothers, to say the same things to you again is not a burden, and for you it is a safeguard, it is a protection. This truth that Paul's going to explain functions as spiritual guardrails in the life of believers. It is the means by which Paul is seeking to keep Christians on track in their personal experience so that the unity of the church will be preserved. As we've studied through the book of Philippians, I think you will notice that there has been a consistent theme, a call to unity and joy. All right, unity is something that Paul pursues in chapter 1. He talks about his personal sacrifice and the desire that the church would contend together as one man, a call to unity based on the gospel. Chapter 2 a description of the mindset of Jesus, and a call to emulate the mindset of Jesus that is encouraged by a description of the cross work of Christ. And then two examples that James talked about last week at the end of chapter 2 that show us the mindset of Christ lived out in the lives of individuals. All right, The next concern that Paul has is that this unity that we experience might be threatened by a tendency. And I believe the tendency that he has a concern about is the tendency towards legalism. So, to address this topic, Paul enters into a discussion about two kinds of people who are present in every church. Okay, two groups of people. One will be defined in verse 2. One will be defined in verse 3. And I want you to think of this text in the terms of something that you allow to become a critic of your own life and your own experience so that you become a person who so loves Christ that you become an encourager of unity in the body of Christ that God has called you to be part of. So let's look at this first group that Paul talks about. And I, I, I'm going to define the first group as those that promote religion. 
okay? Religion being, I earn the favor of God via performance, and I encourage others to enjoy the favor of God by virtue of their performance, okay? That's how I would define religion. It's about what we do to get God to move in our favor. Verse, verse 2, Paul describes the promoters of religion. You're going to notice that the words are not complimentary. They're very, very strong. Paul says, watch out for those dogs. And this is, I guess in our culture, if you call someone a dog, that's bad. But in the ancient world, when Paul says, watch out for those dogs, he's not thinking of like Lassie, okay, or Chance, okay? Dogs in the ancient world were pack animals, okay? They were a disturbance to the culture. They weren't pets. And if they came near you, you didn't walk up and said, come here, okay? You would, you would do everything you could to distance yourself from dogs. It was a derogatory term. And it's fascinating that, that the, in the Jewish establishment of Judaism, the those that thought that their relationship with God or believed that their relationship with God was firm because of their rules, that they referred to outsiders, to the Gentiles, as Gentile dogs. Now, Paul was an insider. He was a Pharisee. And he refers to his own former group by a term that would have strong derogatory connotations. He doesn't want the church to embrace this kind of thinking he wants the church to pull away from this kind of thinking. Troublemakers that fight against them, uh, amongst themselves over food, a term of reproach. Then he says this group is also characterized by evil workings. Okay, so he, he's going to call them evil workers. And the idea here is those that are ill in their intentions and striving against God because of what they promote or encourage. He considers those that encourage rule-keeping to be evil workers, particularly when the rule-keeping is intended to earn you a relationship with God. Paul says, I want nothing to do with that type of thinking. The third thing he says about them, and it's very strong, he says, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Now, that is set in contrast to the beginning of verse 3. Verse 3, he says, for it is we who are the true circumcision. Okay? So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that the circumcision that a legalist insists upon to have a relationship with God is like the work of pagan religions where you inflict personal pain upon yourself in order to abolish your sin and obtain a relationship with God. It all depends on you. Okay, and so Paul is, is kind of calling out the first group, the promoters of religion. Then he's going to move into a second group, the true circumcision. I want you to listen to the characteristics of the true people of God. And the word circumcision, circumcision is the external sign of being a true Jew in the Old Testament. Okay, so to, to be truly a Jew was to have that sign, but it was more indica an indication of the heart that God was after than an external sign by which you gained validation from others. Okay, It's important that you make that distinction. So what is the characteristic of a true Christian? Because Paul's setting up two categories, those that are not true believers and those that are. And notice what he says in verse 3. It is we who are the true circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God. And that should be, that to me is one of those texts that is a bit of a deja vu from John chapter 4. Remember, Jesus says to the woman at the well, you're concerned about where you worship, external things. God is concerned about what? Internal things. Meaning a relationship with God, madam, he would say to the woman at the well, does not begin at the physical place where you go to worship. It begins in your heart as a work of the Spirit of God. And so Paul narrows down this broad section of theology about conversion by the Spirit of God to a very succinct statement. True believers worship by the Spirit of God. What's it mean? It means that God has done a work of regeneration in the heart, has brought you into a relationship with himself apart from your effort, and as a result, you have a desire to worship God from your heart. Okay, it's one of the evidences of true conversion that you begin to sense as a believer in Jesus that the Spirit of God stirs my heart to glorify Christ. And so notice then the second thing that he says, and this is powerful. He says, true circumcision are people who worship prompted by the Spirit, and as a result, they glory in Christ. In other words, they don't focus on the external things. They focus on internal things. Here's what they want people to know. A true believer wants people to know that all of the change and all of the living that you see flowing out of me is a result of God. It's not... It's not a result of my efforts. It's not because I tried hard enough. It's because God did a work in my heart that I cannot take credit for. And the result is that I now glory in what Christ has done. That's a key mark. They worship by the Spirit of God and glory in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then the result of that, if you love Christ, here's what happens. You put no confidence in the flesh. Isn't that a cool progression? to come to a place where I realize that my efforts are completely unnecessary for my relationship with God. That's freedom. And folks, here's what I want to tell you. A legalist will tell a sinner, you have no hope in God. A true believer will glory in Christ in front of a sinner till they come to trust him. One isolates, one denies, one calls, one loves. And here's what Paul is saying. There's a warning that's needed in the church. There, is, there are those within the context of church life who want others to conform to their system so that they can have a relationship with God on their terms. And Paul says, I will have none of that. In fact, it's fascinating then to find what follows. In verse 4, or verse four Paul says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now this is a very interesting statement. Paul's saying if, and it, it's really a hypothetical argument that Paul's going to use, if anyone has reason for confidence in their performance, I have more. Now, in 2 Corinthians, you'll find that the Apostle Paul, when he contemplates giving such a list, what does he say? This is so stupid. Okay, this, he said, I, I struggle with talking about myself but sometimes it is essential that a religious person who has been delivered by the gospel of grace, it is essential that they talk about their past performance so that they can chuck it in the trash can in front of a sinner who needs to know that God is a God of grace who loves and forgives through Christ. That's what Paul's going to do. And it's glorious gospel. So what is Paul going to do? Paul's going to talk about his credentials. Paul has credentials that he inherited, Paul has, in, has credentials that he chose. 
and he's going to talk about both of them to say that if anyone wants to trust in their performance, Paul says, I, I, will, I, will, I will take resume comparison against anyone any day. If you think you have a reason to boast in your flesh, Paul would say, I have more reason, and yet I don't. You have less reason, and yet you do. Okay, that's the kind of comparison that he's going to make. As far as inherited credentials, and I just want to quickly touch on these. He says, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And notice what he goes right to. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, in Old Testament Jewish literature, the day that God prescribed for circumcision was the eighth day. If you go back and read the story of the birth of Christ, you will find that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Why? To keep the law. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I wasn't a proselyte who was circumcised later. I was circumcised according to the strict rendition and understanding of Old Testament law. Of the people of Israel, which is to say what? I, I was born into the family of God, a Jew. I was not a proselyte Jew who was a Gentile who converted into Judaism. He has that credential by birth. And then he says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, and if you know anything about the Old Testament story, you know that the nation of Israel, after the life of Solomon, King Solomon, split apart under the two sons of Solomon. It became Israel to the north and Judah to the south. The tribe of Judah was in the south, the king tribe of Israel. One tribe stayed loyal to the tribe of Judah. Guess which one it was? It was the tribe of Benjamin. So what can Paul say? Paul can say, I'm not just a Jew. I'm not just born as an Israelite in truth. I am part of the most loyal tribe to the people of God. Those are the credentials that he has by birth. Then he has credentials that are chosen or that were based upon Paul's performance. And notice what he says after the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And the idea here simply is this. Paul says, I was a Jew who never assimilated into the Greek culture. Okay, what happened for many Jews for fear of persecution was that once they got taken out of Israel during the dispersions and the attacks against the nation, they assimilated and became like the people, learned the language of the Greeks, spoke the language of the Greeks, lived the customs of the Greeks. Paul could say this, I never did that. And that was a high and heady claim. In regard to the law, Paul could say, I was a Pharisee, that is of the elite religious group, well advanced. My teacher, Gamaliel. So Paul's status and regard personally is very, very high. As regard to zeal, I was zealous against any threats to the religious establishment. I persecuted the church. Paul believed that the gospel of grace was offensive to and tantamount to an attack on religion. And so Paul says, I oppose that with great energy. And then he can say this, as for legalistic righteousness, and this is where he uses the word, as for rule keeping from the perspective of the Pharisees, faultless. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Paul is not saying that he is a perfect man, but that in regards to the external performance of a legalistic Pharisee, Paul could say, no one could accuse me of fault. I was without fault. Now, in verse 7, Paul then moves into the next phase of this argument. 
He uses one word that is interesting because it kind of stops you in your tracks. He says, but. So there is a religious establishment that promotes legalism. Paul says, if anybody wants to think that they gain favor from God by how they live, I far more, however. Okay, so what is he doing? He's basically comparing himself for the sake of setting aside such a claim. So in verse 7 he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is Paul saying? I think in his preceding argument he's saying is if anyone has confidence in the flesh as a means of having a relationship with God, I can go to the mat with the best of them. I can compare them resumes and prove to them that I am better than them. However, all right, now what is Paul doing? Paul's moving now into the new perspective. Verses 4 and 5 and 6 are the old Paul. They're the way Paul used to live. Verse 7 and following is how Paul lives now in light of his encounter with Jesus Christ. I want you to begin in verse 7. He says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. What did Paul do? Paul took the list of accomplishment and went like this, and he found the nearest trash can and he threw it away. So everybody would be standing in all of Paul's credentials, wishing that they could say what he could say without any doubt about his sincerity and truth. And Paul takes it and chucks it in the trash can. And I think it's a powerful new perspective that Paul has. So what is the new perspective? Here, I think, is what Paul is saying. Whatever I had, and in verse 8, he says, everything I had. So it's what I had, and then everything I had. So he's really reaching around the entire context of his religious living. What I, all that I once thought was meritorious or that recommended me to God or that moved God in my direction, everything I clung to and lived for that would obligate God, I now consider as a deficit. The words he uses are, I used to think it was profit. I used to think it was fun to lay out that list and make everybody else in the room feel bad. Now Paul says, I consider that approach to be foolishness. I consider it what I thought was a positive, I now consider as a negative. And in verse 8, he, he lays in a very interesting phrase. He says, I think this way, verse 8, because of what Christ has done. In other words, when Paul began to understand the accomplishment of Christ, when he met the resurrected Christ after the crucifixion on the road to Damascus, he saw something that would forever change his life and that would forever free him from the bondage of legalism, thinking that his zeal and his persistence in obedience, his personal righteousness was so utterly important. Paul was delivered from that and could let go of it and say, you know what, what I used to hold so dearly, I now consider as a detriment to my life. Verse 8, Paul says, here's why I do that. Here's why I have a new perspective. Here's why I see things so differently. End of verse 8, he says, I do this so that I may gain Christ. Now, if you go back up a few verses, you find whatever I thought was gain in the noun form 
In verse 8, you find it in the verb form. What I thought was gain, I've given up so that I may gain or have obtained Jesus Christ himself. So there's a transaction here. There's a trade. Everything that Paul thought mattered, given up for the one who matters. Okay, and this is a glorious transition. So Paul has a new calculation. His, new cal- his old calculation was God plus my effort equals relationship. God plus my effort equals relationship. Now Paul would say Christ plus nothing equals everything. And I want you to think about that. Because Paul moved from being a religious man who is admitting that he didn't know God. He was part of the old circumcision, not the true circumcision. But once he saw the glory of Christ and all that Christ had done that is described clearly for us in chapter 2, once he saw that, it led to a transformation by the Spirit that caused him to glory in Christ and place no confidence in the flesh. Do you see the pattern? It's beautiful. Paul says, my new calculation is Christ plus nothing equals everything. I want to go back to my discussion with the individual that I met on Friday. What she wanted to assure me of was that if I lived a good life, I would experience good things. Folks, do you understand that that is Paul's old way of thinking? The better I do, the better I receive. And Paul's saying, that's not how I look at anything else. And, and so strong is this statement that the Apostle Paul, talking about the package, the resume that he had from inheritance and personal choice, he said, I count it all as rubbish. And the word carries the connotations. And this is strong, but Paul's using strong language because of the importance of the topic to him. He says, I count it as human excrement or as... One writer said it this way. He talked about the scraps from a feast fermenting in a garbage can now fought over by dogs. Very interesting connection. Very interesting connection. Paul says, I counted as something I want to get as far away from as possible. And here's, in a sense, what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I used to clothe myself with that, thinking that that was glory, that that was meritorious. Now Paul looks at it and it says, that is outrageous because of what Christ has done. And I, I, I want to encourage you to, to think about this kind of transition in Paul's thinking, this new calculation. I, you know, I've often said to people when I, when I talk with a Catholic person, I seek to identify with them as honestly as I can. And I think I shared this when I preached on Philippians 3 before. I'll say to a Catholic person, can I tell you why I'm not a Catholic? Meaning why I don't ascribe to the teachings of the Catholic Church. And I'll quote for them from the Baltimore Catechism. In the Baltimore Catechism, it says, through the observance of sacraments, we add to the merit of Christ. Paul would find that statement highly offensive. We add to the merits of Christ. We, he started something, we finish it. We complete what Christ has begun. We bring to fullness the righteousness of God. Paul would say, sorry, I'm out on that one. 
Okay, what would Paul say? All of my righteousness is part of the old calculation that Christ plus something that I add equals a relationship with God. Paul says that is not true. The new calculation is what? Trusting in Christ alone plus nothing equals a relationship with God. Paul's new desire that flows out of this new calculation is verse 9. His new calculation leads to a new desire. The new desire is, I want to be found in him. And the idea of in Christ is to be enveloped in what he has accomplished, not having a righteousness of my own. Okay, now I want you to think about that statement. Not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, literally the idea would be, that comes from law-keeping or religious observance. Paul says, I don't want to be found in that. Why? Because that righteousness of my own that comes from law-keeping is talked about in the book of Isaiah, isn't it? All our righteousness is what? Isaiah 64 and verse 6. It's filthy rags. It is rotted, detestable clothes. It's powerful. When I saw that connection, this is a glorious text that brings it together and shows that the gospel of God runs through the whole Old Testament and comes to a clearer focus in the New Testament. Paul says that external clothing of performance is rotted and putrid, and what I want to do is get as far away from it as I can so that I can move into a relationship with God by faith in Christ and have a righteousness, verse 9 says, that comes from God and is by faith. Do you see? So that any any sinner who acknowledges their sin can now move into a relationship with God because of what Christ has done. The religious person can give up their religion, that dirty clothing, that rotted clothing, that detestable clothing, and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and fitted for heaven. When I looked at that, I thought of the parable that Jesus teaches about people that have come in to the feast. And there's a man who has come into the feast who is wearing the wrong attire. Do you remember the story? And that man is told that he is not welcoming that feast with the king because he has attire that he made himself. And he didn't receive the attire provided by the king. Folks, that is the gospel. See, you can strive to make all the clothing of righteousness that you want, but Paul would say, I've made better, and I had to chuck it all so that I could have Christ, which means what? It means if I was raised in a religious context, I am from Paul's perspective, as was Paul, at a deficit because I believe that deficient righteousness is actually true righteousness. And what is Paul saying? I will give up all of my deficient righteousness so that I can have the true righteousness of Christ. Folks, you know what that means? It means that any irreligious person can lay hold of the gospel of God, the glorious gospel of God that is available in Christ, and be utterly changed and transformed completely apart from their performance and only owing to the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts so that they begin to see the power of what Christ has done. And they be here's what you find in conversion. You see your sinfulness. You begin to experience a change by the Spirit. And I think this is what Paul's saying. 
we, we worship by the Spirit. The Spirit of God has caused us to see our personal righteousness differently, to see it as deficient, and to let go of it. That's freedom. To realize I don't need all of that religious performance because someone has performed everything I need for me. And so I move away from that. I begin by the Spirit to glory in Christ. This is what Jesus is saying to the woman at the well. Those who worship God must worship Him by the Spirit and in the truth of Christ. Paul's saying the day that I saw that, I moved from bondage to freedom. From works righteousness deficient to the glorious righteousness of Christ. And as a result, what happens? We are people that love to sing about Christ and the glory in Christ and to tell others, He saved me. He delivered me. And here's what that does in the church. That will always destroy pride. Why? Because Paul could say, in the context of church life, if anyone could claim a right to a higher status, I could have, but I count my right to status as rubbish so that I may have Christ. Which means... In your conversion experience, you add nothing. And in the process of growing to be like Christ, which we call sanctification, I do not make contributions. Now, let me clarify something. Does the Word of God offer blessings to obedient Christians? Yes or no? I think Psalm 1 is clear. Does it offer rewards? Now, please understand how I mean that. I'm using it differently than the way we talk about rewards in the future. But there's a difference between a blessing mentality and a reward mentality. The reward mentality is you did well, here's your gift. Not your gift, here's what you deserve. Okay, Christians think in terms of blessing. And when you think in terms of blessing, you will be humbled. Here's the way Peter would later say it. God resists the proud. And Paul could say, my list, that's me, but that's stupid but he gives grace to the humble. John, you said something as you were leading, and it sparked in my mind a thought that I heard a few weeks ago when I was in Texas. Grace flows down. I don't mean the way we sing the song from God. I mean the grace of God comes to the lowly. That's awesome. Find the most wretched sinner you can find and tell them there is hope. Think of what you were before Christ. If you were religious, you were clothed in filthy rags. And you were proud of it. And it's kind of like, you don't look good. Paul says, I was so proud of that. But when he compared it, that deficient clothing, to the clothing of Christ, he said, that is living. And so folks, here, 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 I think, is the call of the text. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself, and watch how God begins to unify people in the church who are humbled by the grace of God, who naturally forgive because they are overwhelmed with what they have received. Forgiven people forgive. Self-righteous people demand. And so I encourage you to ask yourself, is the mindset of my friend that I talked to on Friday does it tend to creep into my life? And I want to say it does. Embarrassingly, it does. There are times that I enter into the foolish prospect of comparison. 
and I play the fool. This text breaks my heart. This text about the gospel allows me to go to the worst of the worst. And as Tim Keller says, to explain to them, in the gospel, you will find that you are more sinful than you ever dared believe. But more loved than you would have ever dared hope. Folks, that's freedom. I don't have to find good prospects to become believers. I can share it with anyone. I can share it with anyone. Because it is a message of hope for the lowest of the low and the highest of the high in the context of deficient righteousness. I, I love this text. This is one of my favorite texts for the gospel. And I just, I'm just going to read the last section. Trust me. Even though I have notes on it, I'm just going to read it. Okay? I want you to see how Paul ties this out. He says, I'm going to be found, be found in him, verse 10, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, my work, but that which is through faith, simple belief, prompted by the Spirit in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. It comes down to us. Uh, Luther called it an alien righteousness. It comes from outside to me. I can't take credit for it. If you ever receive an inheritance, don't brag about the new status that you have because you didn't earn it and you, didn't re you received it as a gift only. Okay, so whatever you have in Christ should be shared with humble gratitude. Here's what Paul says then. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and fellowship in his suffering. I'll do anything to know Christ in such a way to glory in his righteousness, becoming like him even in his death. And so somehow, Paul says, for me, a sinner, to attain to the resurrection as opposed to hell. That thought blows my mind. Here's what the Bible says about you today. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what a sinner gets when they realize that they are bankrupt spiritually. And Paul says, if somehow, and I don't think he wants us to do the Greek words and try to understand the nuances. I think he wants us to get a, a faint hope that is becoming clear. Somehow, a wretched, debased sinner like Paul, who realizes that his righteousness was actually so filthy that it made him worse than the worst, which is what he later calls himself, could somehow stand in the resurrection. And that blows his mind. And I think it's just an exclamation. And somehow, a sinner deserving of the wrath of God in hell dares to believe in a hope that changes his life forever. So, church, resist what Sinclair Ferguson called our greatest temptation. To smuggle performance, into the work of grace. The tendency to become a Christ plus equals something. And instead to say Christ plus nothing equals heaven. Somehow, by the grace and power of God, that is our joy. If you come here this morning and you've been trying and failing, there's hope for you by faith in Christ. If you've come this morning and you... You've lately been thinking a little more of yourself than you should. Can I encourage you? Let this text decimate. Let it eat holes in your self-righteous, deficient clothing. And humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. 
and experience a new clothing with the glory of the gospel of Christ that will humble us and make us tolerable and able to live together as one man for the glory of God. Would you bow with me this morning? Father, I pray for that person here this morning who thinks they need to change their life to have God's blessing and favor. Father, I believe the message of this text is Christ alone changes everything. And Lord, for those of us that wrestle with the sense of doing pretty well, God, forgive us. Forgive us and help us to realize that we will always in this life be pursuing Christ righteousness and Christ likeness while knowing that we already have been clothed in it and are safe and secure. And help us, Lord, to worship by the Spirit and to glory in Christ and to kill any confidence in the flesh so that we may truly glory in Jesus. It is for His glory, for His honor, in His name that we pray this morning and all God's people said, Amen.